So I say that Zara's Big Messy book series, which started with Zara's Big Messy Day, are the books that I needed when I was seven years old. I had my first mental health episode at eight years old. It was um, very dramatic. I ended up hospitalized. I know for sure that if I had even half of these tools and supportive adults around me to remind me of these tools, that it could have prevented a lot of, um, not all, but a lot of the struggle that I experienced as a child and an adolescent girl. Rebecca was a guest on the Safe Haven podcast on April 23rd. And in the conversation, I asked Rebecca how she was able to be her best self for her kids while grieving. Her answer was that she wasn't her best self for her kids. And I loved how raw and real Bex's answer was. Welcome to The Safe Haven. I'm your host, Amanda Lytle. The Safe Haven offers a collection of conversations about life's challenges and the pivots we make in order to keep moving forward. Rebecca is also the creator behind the Big Messy Book Series and came up with a plotline for a book about death and grief called Zara's Big Messy Goodbye. Rebecca wanted to provide information and tools to children, adults, and families in the process, and so she connected with Gina Maffa, licensed clinical social worker. This is a slightly longer episode with a different format, but I promise you it's worth the listen. The episode starts with Rebecca Brookie, and then we welcome Gina Maffa onto the call. This episode and the conversations in this episode mean a lot to me. The combination of Bex and Gina in the second half of this episode discussing the characters in the Zara series, what the book covers and why, and in particular what children experience when someone dies is breathtaking. I have links in the notes for the books mentioned in the episode and would really appreciate you checking them out and offering support to both Bex and Gina in any way you're able. Let's jump in. You know, it's, it's really hard for me to go back and think about that time for a couple reasons. There's a lot of pain associated with it. I lost my parents seven months apart. I had so much time to prepare for my dad's passing in April of that year. It was April 2013 because he had been sick with one sort of cancer or the other for seven years. But then just seven months later, my mother is like on vacation living her vibrant life and has a stroke, a massive stroke in her sleep. And, you know, by the time she was found, it was too late. It, it, she passed 10 days later, but by then too much damage had been done and she was completely paralyzed except for her eyes. She could, you know, blink with her eyes. So in the midst of all of that, I have two sisters, an older sister, she's 10 years older than, than I am. And then a younger sister that's three years younger, even though, you know, they are, they're grown adults, right? <laughs> I'm the middle child we have our families and our careers, it was really put on, you know, with my father, it was my younger sister and me taking care of everything. And um, with my mother, it was put completely on me. One of the last things that she communicated was that she wanted me to handle the will. She wanted me to be the executrix of the will. My older sister was deep in her alcoholism. So Beyond me going back and just thinking that this is a really, there's a lot of really hard memories. There was a lot where I just kind of like blanked out. Like I hardly even remember because I had to go into taking care of business mode. And it was handling my dad's estate with my younger sister. And, and, you know, (laughs) I say estate, like they tied with money, but there's still a lot of business to wrap up. There's bills, there's, you know, 
debt. There's, there's things that you have to take care of. And I was really in this kind of, um, you know, have to take care of business, shut off your emotions. I don't think I cried once when my father died, my mother, same thing, you know, taking care of her business was much more uh, complicated and there was a lot to manage. And I was a hundred percent in charge of all of it. And then on top of that, there was my older sister's grief. She was spiraling into the darkest phase of her alcoholism. And so when I said in our last time together, you know, I wasn't really there as a mom. I wasn't showing up as a mom during this time. I mean, I just went through that whole story. and didn't even mention my kids. So it's still there. That idea that, or not the idea, the very true reality is that they were almost last on my list. They fell into the mix when it was like, how are they going to get to North Carolina to visit the hospital to see my mom before she passes? And then how are they getting back? And who's sending them to school? It was all that kind of like, who's transporting the kids, but not how are the kids feeling? And I hate that. It's something that I don't necessarily carry shame about anymore because I understand, I see my own humanity and give myself grace in that moment, but I have a ton of regret. They were grieving so hard. My son, who's now 21, was 13 at the time. And he, was, he said, your know, mom was my best friend. I, lost, I feel like I lost my best friend. And I didn't fully feel that or what that meant at the moment because I was dealing in my own shock working so much to make sure everything got done right. Doing like, you know, and this is what happens when we lose people. Like very few of us are trained in any kind of legal matters or medical matters. So all of this stuff is thrust upon you and you have to learn so quickly in the midst of feeling like your brain and your heart are breaking at the same time. So it was just too much for me to bear. I didn't have the support I needed. I didn't really understand what my kids were going through. I had never lost grandparents. And it was just a lot of uh, just making sure we survived. And it was probably, you know, with the exception of crying when we emptied out her house and left it for the last time, I did sit on the floor in her bedroom and, and sob. But besides that, over the course of maybe the first five or six years after she passed, I think I might've cried fewer than five or six times. And it's just now that I'm recognizing, not that that wasn't grief or a, a way that I was processing grief, but recognizing what this really meant to me, what this loss really did to me. So, yeah. If you're able to look back in this process of grieving, I recognize that there are those different stages of grief. Where are your kids in the mix now? And I guess being older, it's been eight years? Yeah, it'll be, it's eight years in April that I lost my dad, yeah. Yeah. So are now you able to have these conversations with your kids as you navigate your own grief and maybe chat with them about where you were at at that time? So it's interesting. I have five children and there's an older set of three. And then the younger set, uh, right now they're you know, their ages span from 23 down to six. So the older three knew my parents, they were very close to them and had really strong bonds with them. But um, of the other, the other two, the older, uh, he was only two when my mom passed. And then my little one, I became pregnant with her 30 days after my mother died. So she's never met my parents. And eight years later, I'm 
realizing how little we've even talked about her, had her as part of our lives. And, you know, her pictures that I took out of her house and sorted right after she died and put in a big bin, they've been sitting in a bin for eight years in my basement. I don't take out pictures of her. I talk about her sometimes. It's more frequent now, but I've just really been in this place of not dealing with it because I really think it's because of busyness and that I look at grief as something that's going to take up too much time or in the beginning, it really felt like a waste of time. Mm. Like I just can't sit here and be sad. No, but curious about this. Mm -hmm. Is that a coping mechanism? Of course it is. Yeah. So, but were you this busy beforehand or have you taken on more to avoid the grief? I don't know if I necessarily, necessarily took on more to avoid grief. It's just always been the way that we did things. Mm -hmm. And for me, I have a long mental health history that we talked about. And for me to be open and expressive about my feelings, especially so-called negative feelings like anger or sadness, that spelled danger for me. Mm. That meant I'd have to go away or I would be institutionalized. So even now as an adult, I rarely cry. And as soon as I feel tears coming up, I get this, I can't even talk my way through it really. It just feels like, all right, just take a deep breath. (laughs) Just take a deep breath. I allow myself to be sad, but I really have to be in my head about it. I have to say, okay, Rebecca, you're allowed to sit down and be sad. You're allowed to take this break. I have to give myself permission. So even with grieving my parents, it's starting, I think my process is about talking about them. Or every once in a while, I'll just say to my husband, I said to him, in fact, this morning, because I'm thinking about my 17-year-old's graduation coming up and it's all these big things that are happening for us. Like, I just really wish... My parents were here to see this. Mm-hmm. I miss my dad and how funny he was. And oh my gosh, he would think that Sonny was hysterical or Annie was the cutest thing in the world, or he'd be so impressed with Calvin and his abilities and art and music. And I just missed those experiences. And I didn't know how much, again, I didn't know how much it impacted me and how much of a loss it was until very recently. Mm-hmm. Was there something in particular that brought that awareness as to how much grieving there still was left to do? Was there something that kind of brought those feelings forward? The awareness of my grief really came with me doing a lot of work on myself. Mm -hmm. And the thing that compelled me to go do the work on myself, go into therapy was a relationship with first my oldest son, but then my middle child, who was 15 at the time when I decided to go to therapy, it, it was, they were falling apart. And I was questioning myself as to whether I was fit to be a mom. I felt really lacking in my ability to manage my own mental health. And, and it was kind of spilling on to my kids. And when I went into therapy and I realized how much I was hurting And how much I was trying to control things because I felt so out of control and how much I needed to let go and allow my children to have their own paths. I was able to then recognize how what was happening in my life at the time was exactly what was happening in the relationship with my parents, more specifically my mother. And learning the process of healing with my kids 
and experiencing that healing and that growth in relationship and that growth in bond allowed me to then go back almost in time and heal that relationship with my mother. I wrote a book about it, Managing the Mother Load. That's largely what it's about. It's not a parenting book. It's about creating a life based on the lessons my mother gave me, but also healing relationships with my children and myself through healing the relationship with my mother. So one kind of informed the other. As I was you know, having these conversations with my son in the role of mother, I was able to also be in his place and remember what it was like with my mom. And again, it was like, I was just repeating a pattern. And as I was able to heal that and, and really extend grace to myself and forgiveness to myself, it was transferred over onto my mother. And as I forgave her, the grieving process changed because I think a lot of the stuff that kept me from grieving too was because we had such a contentious relationship when she was alive and it felt silly to grieve. Like we weren't speaking for three months before she passed because she was angry with me again. <laughs> so we had that kind of relationship. So when she passed and, and I actually said a month before she, she died on November 21st. And I said in October in a session with my hypnotherapist, I was sobbing and I said, I just don't think that I can heal until she's gone. And so I had this guilt that I had wished her death upon her. I had guilt for being so ungrateful as a daughter. Then I was like, but wait a minute, we we were horrible to each other and she was a terrible mother and all these other things. So I felt silly. Like, and you're sad that she's like, you wanted her to be gone. You wanted her out of your life. So it's all these mixed up feelings. So as I forgave her and I got to see her as my mother or as a woman, not just my mother, because when she was here, she was just my mom. But now that she's gone, she's this other woman that I'm looking at, this complicated, complex, you know, multidimensional woman. When I saw her as that and I was able to forgive her and understand her, then what I lost for real really started to set in. Right. So that's the thing about grieving. It's like, you know, we have their, our relationships with the people that we love while they're here. And we think that they stop when they're gone and they don't because 95% of the healing that I've experienced with my mother and my dad, but again, we had more time to say goodbye and sort our stuff out. 95% of that happened in the past eight years after she had passed. Mm-hmm. What has been the biggest takeaway or the biggest lesson through this grief for you in your personal life? I used to think that the stages of grief, you know, the the famous stages of grief that we all know about. And I've come to find out very recently that those stages of grief were actually meant for the dying person. So there's this last part of it that's acceptance when they like are okay to let themselves go. And so I had this misconception that I'm first I'm supposed to go through this stage and then I'm supposed to go to this one. And, and it's going to be this linear thing when that doesn't apply to the living at all, actually. (laughs) So now I understand grief as being something that is unpredictable, that can change every day. It can change from moment to moment, that there's really, there's no phase to graduate from. Um, It can come in waves and it can be experienced in a lot of different ways. Like grief can come through too as, as a lot of joy. I don't look at grief as being an expression of sadness anymore. I, I look at it that, you know, there's so many times that I'm experiencing my mother and remembering her fondly. And that feels like grief too, because there's that simultaneous ache. But again, it's still coming through as something that feels warm and comfortable and like home. Mm-hmm. So grief and, and my very dear friend, one of my best friends is losing her father right now after a long battle with cancer. 
and we'll be on FaceTime one moment and she's laughing and we're telling jokes and then she'll send me a message <laughs> 10 minutes later. And she's like, and now I'm crying. I thought I wasn't going to cry today. I thought it was over it. And that's what it's like. And it, it might be that way 20 years from now too. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about the expression of emotions and talking about this. When I say expression, I'm like expressing how you're feeling, talking about how you're feeling. You just mentioned earlier about how it, you have to be really in your head to feel sadness or to allow yourself to really dig deep into the sadness. When it comes to mothering your kids, how have you started modeling or talking about emotions differently throughout this process? I model everything by doing. And that's another reason why I work so much on myself because the way that I was teaching them to grieve was not healthy because I wasn't talking about it at all. So I have become not just, I've always been an expressive person outside, you know, to other people, but I've become very intentional about sharing my feelings, no matter what they are with my kids all the time. Even when it's like, Y'all are getting on my nerves. (laughs) Like I need some time to myself. I need space to feel like a human. And then I'll play with you in a little while. And as a result of that, my kids are excellent boundary setters to the point where it's kind of annoying because I'll be playfully teasing, which isn't okay. Playfully teasing my 10 year old. And he'll say, mom, I don't like that. And I'm like, oh, I'm just, you know, I was just being funny. And he's like, I don't think it's funny. Like, wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Look at you. All right. I'll take my jokes somewhere else then. So I'm really proud of them, but I know that's an extension of me modeling that behavior. And I am also really, really honest about how I messed up. And we do talk about that time. And I'll say, I am sorry that I wasn't there for you the way that you needed. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. That was beyond my capabilities. And they need to know that too. Like not everyone's going to show up for you in the way that you need. And um, I, it would have been impossible. I would have broken, but I do understand that they needed that. And, you know, that's why I wrote Zara's Big Messy Goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. This book is for kids and kids that get kind of caught up in the melee of what happens when someone passes suddenly and, and you have to prepare. And sometimes they're left out or they're confused or, they feel like they're just not being heard. And even though you might not be able, you know, as a parent to be there hundred percent, I think that there are ways to support a child so that they can at least feel like they matter in the process. Mm-hmm. I love that. And before we fully jump into Zara's Big Messy, which I'm so excited about, I had one more question about the communication with your kids now as they've grown up. Yeah. Is there that understanding and that, I guess, mutual empathy for them to now understand where you were at, or I guess to the best of their ability, since they haven't physically been there or emotionally, mentally been there. Is there at least that understanding so much as there can be? Yeah. I mean, that's the conversation really is that they deserved to have grownups that were taking care of them. They are entitled to that and they didn't necessarily have it in all the ways they needed. So repeating that, I'm sorry, is not an excuse. Like the facts were, I didn't have the tools. I'm sorry because you deserved more. And that's it. And just acknowledging that goes a long way. And my older kids are in therapy. I do joke with my oldest who's 23. I'm like, I feel 60% responsible (laughs) for the way that you turned out. (laughs) 
Take 60. <laughs> um, not all the way. Some of it can be you. And, um, and she'll joke. She's like, I don't know. I think it's kind of like 85. But I know that she goes into therapy and I know that she talks about me. And that is 100% appropriate because she needs to have that healing in her life. And, all, and, and what I say to them now is like, look, I wasn't everything I wanted to be. And I am trying to make that up to you by being there fully now. And whether that's right or wrong, it's the way that it feels good for me. So I know, you know, my older one, whatever she needs, I'm going to be there. And even outside, very outside of my comfort zone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It sounds like you've just created the most beautiful relationships, but also friendships with your kids. And I just, I admire that so much. Yeah, I really like them as people. If they yeah. were not my kids, I really would want to hang out with them. Yeah, not that's every day, the coolest part. Them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> some of them test me. <laughs> okay, this is amazing, Rebecca. Thank you so much for sharing this. I'd love to switch into Zara's Big Messy. Tell me about the foundations of that before we call in our friend Gina. So I say that Zara's Big Messy book series, which started with Zara's Big Messy Day, are the books that I needed when I was seven years old. I had my first mental health episode at eight years old. It was um, very dramatic. I ended up hospitalized. I know for sure that if I had even half of these tools and supportive adults around me to remind me of these tools, that it could have prevented a lot of, um, not all, but a lot of the struggle that I experienced as a child and an adolescent girl. So I'm writing these books for my little self, but obviously for all the little Zaras out there who have big, messy emotions <laughs> and want better ways to, to manage them and to accept them and to live with them because they're not bad. They're just messy. That's it. And so what are some books or book titles? What are you covering in the Zara series? So the first is Zara's Big Messy Day, which deals with just everyday anxiety and the stress that comes up. Like stress is inevitable. You know, how we deal with it is, is really where it's at. So that delivers a breathing technique and a mindfulness technique. Zara's Big Messy Bedtime is, um, it's a bedtime story, but it's really about change. You know, the anxiety that kids feel when things are different, unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a little poem, an activity, a tool that children can use at bedtime to reflect on their day and to be able to talk about the stuff that, you know, we can celebrate and then the stuff that's not so great. Uh, Zara's Big Messy Playdate is <laughs> one of my favorites because it has a return of Zara's nemesis, Penelope, from the first book. And we learn that Penelope actually, she participates in bully behavior, but she's not a bully. She's a kid that we just have to get to know a little bit better to understand her story and how she works to be able to communicate with her better. So it offers a, um, a nonviolent communication technique for, and it comes in a four-part tool that was developed by Alex Jamison and Bob Gower, and they are communication experts, and they wrote a book called Radical Alignment for Adults. So we adapted the method, and they offer their expertise at the back of the book for parents and caregivers. And then the most recent is Big Messy Goodbye, which has my whole heart because it really is a product of my grief journey. And it's, uh, it's the book that I wish I had when my children were dealing with the death of my parents. It's the wisdom I wish I had, but I have it now. And I'm very happy to share it with my little ones and uh, other little ones everywhere. 
This is so, so beautiful. I love that you're also including resources. I think that this is so, so special. And yeah, this needs to be everywhere. I, even as an educator, I'm just like, ah, these books need to be everywhere. So on that note, you're not going to believe the timing. Gina has just entered. So I'm going to allow you to introduce Gina once we get her in here. So let's get Gina. We love Gina. Who doesn't love Gina? Honestly. Gina Moffa is connecting to audio. Hello, you beautiful. So happy to be here with you guys. <laughs> so happy to have you here. Rebecca, can you take it away, please, and introduce our lovely friend Gina to the listeners? So Gina Moffa came to me, came into my awareness as a client in my Blocked to Book coaching program. And when I was thinking about just thinking about writing Zara's big messy goodbye about grief. I was like, all right, well, Gina has to be a part of it because she's not only one of the kindest people that I know, but she's a licensed clinical social worker. She's helped me so much with issues with, with me and my family. And I knew she would be the best one to watch over this book and to help me write it and make it great. So here she is. Here's my friend Gina and my co-author on Zara's big messy goodbye. I don't know if I'm going to get words out because I'm going to cry. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it was, it has been really, we've had a ride. We really took off. We took the Concord together here. You know, yeah. from the minute we met, it felt like there was something going on. You know, we had, we were, we met in the, in the, really in the beginning of the pandemic. The really, the way that we became friends is I got this random package in the mail filled with, all sorts of little beautiful things and a box of pop tarts. And I was like, who is, who knows my heart well enough to send me a box of pop tarts? I mean, this is old school friendship right there. <laughs> and, and we were new friends, you know, and, and maybe not even quite friends at that point yet. We were sort of in the beginning of that. And so that was what solidified it. You were then in my circle of trust. So, yeah. but what was so interesting is that I was in this, you know, group dynamic, which was phenomenal. And I've made a lot of friends actually from that group, but I realized that I'm not great in groups, but I really wanted to stay connected to you, Rebecca, and just be a part of um, all the things that you were doing. And so what was really the most interesting is I was trying to write a book proposal on grief and I was really blocked and I continued to be blocked. But when you approached me to write about Zara, I was already such a fan of Zara and her stories and, and Sam, as we know, is my favorite still, but really just being a part of her evolution. And this felt like it flowed. The minute that you asked me to be a part of it, I was like, done. When are we starting? What are we going to talk about? Who's dying? <laughs> you know, and it really just felt right. And you know, it just happened very quickly. And I had nothing blocked. And so that was the first time I felt it was my own evolution with writing and being a part of this, being a part of a project that was much bigger than this, much bigger than me, and that could have the opportunity to help people who are really stuck, teachers, parents, caregivers, and little people in something that is so that continues to be so stigmatized. I forgot about that part of it. I mean, the pandemic, how could you forget about the pandemic? But, you know, while Zara's Big Messy Goodbye was something that I wanted to write, it became so urgent, such an immediate need because of the pandemic. And we're not just addressing 
I don't think with the book, just the loss of human life, we're addressing loss in general and how do we deal with something, you know, that we love, that we once knew that we can't know anymore. And that could be the classroom. Like kids miss their friends and it really hurt for them to be by themselves for so long. And I hope that people can use this book to talk about grief in general with their children. Mm-hmm. This is so beautiful. I, I had kind of having had conversations with both of you prior to this, obviously, about the grieving through the loss of, yeah, places that we've been, maybe friends that we've been hanging out with, just that quote unquote normalcy or that normality that we were so used to, right? I, I'm curious about when you first started to connect and this story was starting to unfold and it was really starting to come together for you. What were some key tips that you were making sure to include or tools that you were trying to put into the writing and the story itself as takeaways? You know, it's interesting, a criticism that I've gotten for the book that was really important to me to include in the book was how sudden and out of the blue the death is introduced to the reader and to Zara. So I've heard from another publisher that was, you know, I'm selling the book on the foreign markets and they said, we need more buildup to the death of, of Aunt Molly. I'm like, no, we don't, because that's not how it happens in real life. That's not how it happened with my mother. You know, I got a phone call at noon on a Wednesday that said, your mother suffered a stroke and you need to get down to North Carolina. And that was it. I was on a plane. I didn't even wait for my kids to come home from school. That's just the way it happened that day. So when mama walks into the bedroom um, in the morning and she's like, you know, good morning. And I have this news, Aunt Molly died or Aunt Molly passed. That's what a lot of kids experience, even when there is a lead up. How many times are the grandparents sick or family members sick and the parents aren't talking about it with the kids because it's going to be too much and then the person passes and that's when the conversation happens. So that was really important to me that it was sudden. It was really important to me, of course, to be told from the perspective of a kid for them to be really confused, to not put in a lot of details of what was going on, because usually the kid, the child is just witnessing what's happening from like as an outsider. So mommy and daddy, they just, mama and daddy just go run errands and the kids are left behind and they're scared. They don't know when they're going to be back. You know, these are all real things that happen in the aftermath of a death. And it ends at the funerals, really that short space and time. So I wrote the manuscript and then I turned it over to Gina, who was like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> Let me. No, she did. She's, she's very gentle. She would never do that. But she did make it magic. I had a story, but she made it not only more real, but put in the education and the real expertise. Like, that's why I brought her in, because I couldn't um, speak as a therapist. No, thank you. First of all, yeah, it was a great collaboration in that way because you're absolutely right. And a lot of the people that I work with, a lot of the the parents who bring kids in, this is how it happens. There's no beautiful Hollywood story. It's they're here one day, they're gone the next. And it felt really important to me that the story itself be as unambiguous as possible, whether that means, you know, telling you don't use pass away. I think as adults, we could use, okay, when I'm in session, I'll use whatever language the person comes in with. But with children, it's really important that we say die because any other way of sort of categorizing it or describing it brings in its own anxiety. You know, if they've gone away, uh uh-oh, does that mean you'll go away and you won't come back? I mean, there's so many things. Kids, bless their hearts, are narcissists. 
they're meant to be. And so everything revolves around them and their loss and what they're in control of. And so it was important that we make it so that Zara wasn't in charge of caretaking and be, you know, she had a lot of worry about making sure that everyone was okay and what she could do and how she could help. That is real. Like that shit is real. (laughs) But, you know, in every session I work with, with kids, it's, they have the most anxiety because their entire landscape is different. And it may not look different in terms of, you know, maybe both of their parents are there or their caretakers haven't necessarily shifted, but the dynamics have. And when a child notices that their parent is withdrawing or they're not feeling their feelings, you know, kids notice all of that energy stuff. And I think that was probably the most important thing to bring forth in this book is the anxiety that kids feel and the way that it comes out. Sam, for example, is just acting out. He's Sam. He doesn't have his words. He just, you know, something is going on with Sam because he just acts it all out. Yeah. But he doesn't really express it. So Sam is Zara's little brother. He's her four-year-old little brother and people, I mean, they might notice, they might not notice, Mm -hmm. but in all four books, Sam doesn't have a line. He doesn't say a word. So Sam is pure emotion. He's pure activity. And it really, because I do want to center Zara and her feelings, but she gets really angry when Sam is acting out and she accuses him of not caring about Aunt Molly, their aunt who who died. And um, that isn't the case. People express grief differently. Yeah. And they express it in bursts, right? Kids aren't going to be sad or angry or upset for periods of time like adults can be. They're just going to come in little fits and bursts of things that are going to look like they're just angry, upset, anxious, or just being bad. But that all is grief. And I think if you don't know what that looks like, you're going to think your kid is just acting out or you're going to know that your kid is acting out, but you won't really understand why. And I think for me, the jackpot of this book really is the way that you lay it all out with the characters and and the love and the way that you can talk about grief so openly, no matter where you are, even if you're in a dressing room, mm-hmm. that it doesn't have to be this special place that you sit and you know be quiet, that we can be real and that we can deal with feelings in real time and normalize them. That's yeah. the best thing we could teach our kids is to normalize talking about their feelings, no matter where they are or what's going on. And that's really the whole point of all the Zara books. It's not just to normalize feelings, but it's to normalize every parts of our lives that are normal, like divorce and separation and your parents being two different races. Zara is a biracial black girl. Her mother's black, her father's white. It's not brought up in the book. It's shown through the pictures. And it's interesting because another bit of feedback that I've gotten um, in the process of selling the book is that we need for the relationships to be stated more clearly. And this was coming primarily from, well, it was coming only from white folks because they wanted to explain why Zara is light brown. And these grandparents that come in in Big Messy Goodbye are very, very light. They're white. They're her father's um, parents. Anyone that's reading that book would have would understand. There's no need to explain this to kids. And honestly, I think in not explaining a lot of this, it helps to normalize it. It helps to destigmatize it because kids just accept things. So, you know, we have gay characters. Penelope's mother's gay. We haven't introduced that as a theme yet, but it will become very apparent in future books. We have characters from all different countries with different kinds of last names, um, different colors, different abilities. And again, it's just a matter of fact. I remember a girlfriend um, calling me when she read Big Messy 
bedtime because Zara was going to miss or visit her dad at his apartment. And she was like, wait a minute, they're divorced. <laughs> when did that happen? I was like, well, it's always been, it's always, you didn't see him having dinner with them. And you know, he, she saw him on a weekend on her on what, visit with daddy. So it's things like this that we just, it's, it's a big deal and it isn't. It's a big deal and it's something that we can talk about openly without characterizing it as good or bad. And that, again, that's why we say big messy because that's what the feeling feels like. It's not necessarily bad or good. It just is. But it's also, you know, it feels like a lot. It's big and it's messy. I love that you say that these are the books that you kind of wish that you'd had or the resources and tools that you wish you'd had when you were seven Mm -hmm. because everything you've both just discussed is for everybody, you know, and to be able to read through these and to look through the pictures and to use each of these books or scenarios or images as a topic of discussion with your family or your friends. This is tremendous. I think it's fantastic. Like, congratulations. Thank you. I have a couple testimonials from kids. Most of them come from adults. Like, Mm -hmm. I needed this. I used this. I lost someone. And this really helped me. One of the most beautiful testimonials uh, was from a mother. She's been with me, following me for a long time. She lost her son to a drunk driver a few years back. He was only 18 years old. And she bought the books and she said it was just so beautiful and so helpful. And it's, and it was very real for her. And, and she was going to use the little poem that Gina wrote. <laughs> the little poem that Gina wrote, that's Gina's magic contribution to the book. Cause we always have a tool, a special tool or some words that people can use. And, and she came up with that, um, that four line poem. That's wonderful. And I'm not going to say it. You're going to have to just get the book. Uh, but it's also available for free. So I do want, if you could, in the show notes, direct them to the website to download the PDF for free. But the feedback has been mostly from adults using it and saying, I wish I had this tool before. And um, yeah, that makes me super, super happy that they can continue to find healing even from a children's book. Because I'll tell you, one of my favorite books when I was a kid, I forget the author's name, but it's a famous series of like these hedgehog family. And the book is called I Was So Mad. And in the story, it's like, I was so mad that I wanted to cry, but instead I, you know, like held it in and I was courageous. And I'm like, what? But that's how I learned, right? <laughs> like crying is bad, but it's like, no, I was so mad and I let it out and I cried and I wailed and, and then I felt better. That would have been more encouraging to me as a kid. Same. And I think even, you know, just culturally, everybody deals with death differently. I came from a really very Italian background just fresh off the boat and death is everybody wears black and they have a lace veil and you don't talk about it and you cry and you don't go near the person. And it's a whole barrier that people put up. And I remember just being so terrified at every, and, and there's like this really ominous music playing and there's, you know, the person laid out, but they look like they were just sleeping, but you know that they're not. There's so much confusion to me around death. There was so much confusion for me as a kid and also the not being able to really ask questions. You know, I was too young to understand it. That's too big for you. And it left me in a place where now I'm a grief therapist because (laughs) it was really confusing and scary and overwhelming for me. And it was important for me to add the part of let's talk about a funeral because even adults don't know what to do at a funeral. (laughs) And it's this big thing, you know, it's, and it became this, to me, it's the elephant in the room. What do we, 
let's leave our kids home. You know, let's not have them be a part of this process and this ritual. But then the kid, they see the person one day and then they don't have them anymore. And there's really no explanation. And it becomes a trauma because people come and then they're gone. And then where's your attachment to that person? It just disappears. It's as if nobody was ever there. And I think that is the most damaging psychologically that you can do to a child. And even for me growing up. So it was important for me to make sure that there was no stone unturned in terms of death rituals and talking about things being very, very clear with children, what is happening. And obviously age depends on it, right? And understanding and their developmental age, all of that. But I think it's really important that we stop making ourselves so comfortable thinking we're saving the child from being uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, we lost, on top of losing both my parents seven months apart, I lost my stepfather about a year before that. And then my ex-husband's mother um, right before that. So there was a lot of loss happening at the same time. And the children participated in all of that at different levels. So they always went to the funeral, but not everyone, because he came from a Catholic Italian family, so they had an open casket. Not every one of them wanted to go up to the casket, which is totally fine. But it was important for me to have them as part of the family and being with us. So they could stay in the lobby. They could see that there's this ritual. There's this saying goodbye. They could see other people grieving and people comforting each other. So that was really important. And with Zara, Big Messy Goodbye, I wanted it to be a very quiet book. So it's not as wordy in the copy as the other books that have, you know, big lessons to teach, but we get very like into the whys and a lot of, a lot of dialogue. This was very quiet because that's also a reality where people stop talking to the kids. They stop saying things. So there's a sequence where they're getting ready for the funeral over a spread and there's no words. You just see kind of Zara's mom tugging at her hair, Sam trying to like not get dressed, her mom's wrestling him to his clothes, which she's like, this happens in several books. Sam does not like to wear clothes. Them walking into the funeral home and greeting the grandparents that are already there, like driving to the funeral home. It's this sequence of events that's done wordlessly because the mother was hurting so much and she really didn't have anything to say. And that's just another reality. But then conversely, at the end, our parent notes, which are usually two pages in the other Zara books, or five. I gave Gina as much space as she needed to say what she needed to say. I'm sure she could have written a whole book back there because she's writing a book on this. But um, this topic in particular, that's so heavy and heavy, not because it has to be terrible, but heavy because there's so much stigma attached to it. It needed to be sorted out and have space for that. So again, I'm so grateful for Gina coming to my rescue and making this book great. It was an honor for me to be a part of it. It's a book that really, really touches my heart in its tenderness and in the complicated nature of grief, but the way that it brings beauty and remembrance and education and understanding and truth telling. It's just beautiful in that way. It's been a gift. I'm I sorry think- it's over. I'm, it's not over. We th- listen. There's there's going to be more, and and I haven't sent uh, Gina. I haven't sent your copies yet, but I'm I'm going to make a note to do that today. There's a little bookmark that goes into every single Zara book that helps reinforce the lesson of the book, so the child can have it to as a kind of like a cheat sheet. And this one has Zara's poem on it, and on one side it has the poem that she can recite, and on the other side it says Happy Memories Are Forever, and it has a picture from the book that you'll 
you'll get to see when you download it or buy it. But there's a very, very special memory, another wordless spread that's shared in the book that Zara shares with her Aunt Molly. And so that's featured on that. Not um, fantastical. It's not, you know, a lot of books that deal with death are either based on religion or what happens after we die or this person's in a better place and all these messages that that don't necessarily comfort the child or comfort me. Like, I don't care if my person's in a better place. I want them here with me. But at least I know I can access these memories of them. I know I can access this warm feeling that I had. And so it's an exercise in mindfulness, in pausing, in being with yourself, connecting to yourself, connecting to that person, and recalling something that made you feel good. So that's another lesson from the book and, and a little bonus that you'll get when you when you buy the book. It's a little bookmark. This is so special. It is. Yeah, what a <laughs> I love writing books for kids. I think it's the most special thing ever. I love it so much. And being a part of it was a gift. Mm-hmm. Although I have to say the most challenging, this is the insider thing. I was like, how do we pare down? How do you make a children's book? Oh, yeah. If I would have left it up to Gina, it would have been 5,000 words. I was like, all right, go. (laughs) She's like, that's great, but uh, we're going to have to cut this sentence, like uh, all of these sentences, and we're going to, and 17 pages of this now. (laughs) But therein lies the beauty of writing a children's book because you're taking these really, really big concepts and you're having to turn them, like, look, give me 70,000 words to write about meditation, like easy peasy but give me 700 and now there's a challenge. So you have to deliver a story, a message, a lesson, because you want it to be educational, this takeaway that kids are gonna you know, value in this you know, 32 pages or 700 words, but, and, and, but, it's so beautiful because that's what healing should be. It should be accessible. It should be something that anyone can understand, that can be communicated to anyone and they receive it. So I say, if you're an adult and you're looking for some fast track healing, go to therapy and go to the children's section and pick up books on whatever topic you're needing to deal with, whether it be grief, whether it be like finding more joy, confidence, you're gonna find some good stuff because it's so uncomplicated. I don't disagree. Mm-hmm. I'm putting myself out of business as a publisher. No. <laughs> I'm like, don't read the adult books anymore. <laughs> I love both of you. I love that this was a collaboration. I also loved the moment when I was like, wait a second, you two know each other? What? I know everybody. If there's a cool person to know, I'm going to get to know them. I'm not lying. Like, I am the, per- like, I sent her the, the Pop Tart box. It's like, hi, I like you. You're going to be my friend. So (laughs) if you know someone cool, it's likely that I know them. (laughs) Indeed. Oh, my gosh. I appreciate both of you so much. This has been a really, really special recording. Thank you both for your time, for your energy, for this series. This needs to be everywhere. This is everybody listening. This is in the show notes. Go find it. Go get it ASAP. I do need to make sure, though, that just for anyone listening that has access to a computer or their phone right now, where can they find you? Where can they jump on this? Bex? For me, I would love for you to go to wheatpennypress.com, and there you'll find all the Zara books in addition to other beautiful books that we have published, and you'll find out how to connect with me and also 
what I'd really urge people to do is to consider supporting the Penny Press Little Readers Big Change Initiative, which is our nonprofit that supplies free um, books and uh, author visits and workshops to children grades K through eight. In fact, I'm looking at a pile of 300 books that I'm about to deliver to a school in New Jersey tomorrow. So amazing. And Gina, where can people find you? It's much simpler. It's just ginamoffa.com or on Instagram at ginamoffalcsw, where I also gush about Row House Pub and Wheat Penny Press and Beck's Life. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you both so, so much for being here. I appreciate this so much. This is really, really awesome. Thank you so much, Amanda. And thank you for having me be a part of this. Yeah. You're very talented. I love your work. Rebecca and Gina, thank you both so much for this heartfelt, informative, and very passionate conversation. The work you're both doing both independently and together is so important. And you're both women that I really look up to and feel inspired by. To everyone listening, I recognize the privilege that comes with this platform, and I am committed to creating a safe, brave, and inclusive space with intention. If this episode has hit you right in the heart or inspired you in any way, please screenshot the screen while you're listening, send it to your friends, and share it in your Instagram stories. Please be sure to tag us at the Safe Haven Podcast, at Wheat Penny Press, at Gina Moffa LCSW, and at Beck's Life, so we can all personally thank you for it. If you're able to write a review or leave a juicy five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, that really helps this podcast grow. Please be sure to check out Wheat Penny Press and all of the links in the notes for more information. And I will talk to you next week.